Revelation chapter 14 and verse 9, it says, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. And here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. God, I pray that as we again open your word, that there would be a modicum of humility in the speaker's heart and give the grace to the listeners. We pray, God, that you'd receive your crown and your glory, that you are the only teacher here. I can speak to the mind, but you make it make sense and you give life to it. You quicken it in the hearts. And so, God, we ask that as I bow myself out, you give me the grace to do that and you would be bowed in. And you give clarity to the message. And because we're in a conflict of spiritual in nature, that you'd bind the work of the devil and cast him out. Cover us with the blood of Jesus. Take all the glory in this place. Not some of it, but every ounce of it. Nothing here belongs to me. It all belongs to you. Glory to your name forever. We pray that we could honor you. We pray that we could serve you. And that we could finish this thing called life in a way that would be pleasing. Though we know we're going to screw it up. But God, as we screw up, we lay it down at your feet and say, well, Lord, <laughs> there I go again. And so, God, I pray that you would have your way in our lives, that this would not just be an information dump on people, but it would actually be a challenge to our hearts, that it wouldn't condemn us and drive us away from you. It may convict us, but that purpose is to drive us close to you. So please, Lord, let us come close. And we pray again that you'd Cover us with the blood of your Son. Bind the work of the enemy. And be in this house, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Revelation 9, 14, verses 9 to 11 in particular, that we covered in part last week, it presents a profound depiction laden with theological and ethical significance. The segment follows a sequence of messages conveyed by the three distinct angels. We're now here on the third one. And each one of these angels is bearing a unique message that serves both as a cautionary tale and as an invitation. The first angel comes upon the scene, as the text says, he preaches the everlasting gospel, which means it doesn't change. So that whatever our understanding of the gospel is, it may be true, but it's incomplete if it's not compatible with what Revelation 14 says is the everlasting gospel. And the message that he preached was, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him, because he made everything. He made the heavens and the earth. So the proclamation of the everlasting gospel goes out with that first angel, but the second angel comes upon the scene, and it declares the fallen nature of Babylon, which in the book of Revelation, Babylon is this system. It's not a person. It's a system that has ultimately destroyed mankind. From the very beginning, you could trace the narrative of the scripture to two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. And Babylon is that city that destroys mankind. It's a literal city. It's a figurative. It's a spirit as well. It's all of those things. And yet the declaration in the last days in Revelation 14 is that it's fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great. And the reason for her fall is she's destroyed my servants. She seduced them with the wine of her adulteries. She's led them astray. So the very vehicle that has destroyed particularly men, but increasingly women, you're, you're advancing quite wonderfully, <laughs> But has destroyed mankind, God says, I'm going to destroy that system. So that later on in chapter 18, he calls to his people and he says, so come out from among her. Don't be part of her anymore. Let her go. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It's a declaration that it's as good as done. And chapter 17 and 18 goes on to lay out the nature of that fall of Babylon. But the third angel, as we saw here in the passage and as we just read, is a proclamation, in fact, a warning against receiving what we've come to know in chapter 13 as the mark of the beast. 
And this mark of the beast was more than just a, a, a stamp or a prick and a poke in the back of the right hand of the forehead without which you can't buy or sell. It's a culminating event. It's something that has been inculcated spiritually, practically in people's lives so that in the end day when the Antichrist comes upon the scene, for various reasons people accept it, but ultimately because small life choices have increasingly been made that align with his kingdom so that when his kingdom comes, they're very easily wanting actually to accept it. And at the heart of these verses lies a solemn proclamation regarding the severe repercussions of aligning oneself with this system and accepting the mark of the beast. And the directive is unequivocal. Abstain from taking the mark. Don't take it. Don't take it. And we can say, yes, one day in the future, I won't take that. But I'm going to pose to you here this morning, there's a whole series of choices we make in our life that determine the path that we're on. So that we can't go down the path to the left and then end up on the path to the right. And those series of choices leads us to a natural conclusion so that the whole scripture, the war with man, is get off of that path. Get off of that path. You're judging me. No, I'm telling you, that path only leads to one place. <laughs> and consequently, the, the passage elaborates on, quote, the wine of God's wrath, poured undiluted into the cup of his indignation. This wrath has not yet come. And if it hasn't come, you warn people who you love. It's supposed to be a deterrent and so this wrath is God's judgment for those who take the mark of the beast. And like a good surgeon who's compelled to amputate a gangrenous leg, the removal of the system and those who associate it with is depicted as a forceful yet necessary action. It has to come off. And nothing is polite or kind. I mean, I watched those old World War I movies and what have you. You ever see that on Netflix right now? They have that World War I restored in color. And they take those videos and with computer technology, it's like it's living color today. Not grainy black and white. It is living color. It's like you can see these guys' eyes and their faces. And of course, they began, I show my little kids this, how cool it was, the transition they had on the show. And all of a sudden, they show this foot of, of a trench foot. And in the black and white picture, is gross. But you put it in color and vivid detail. It's like, it comes to life. <laughs> and those things are disgusting and it's gross. Many times they show in those videos that they're cutting the guy's leg off. And what do you think? That's a violent action. That's a violent action. There's nothing, well, this is going to pinch a little. You know, it's like this guy's screaming. This is a horrible thing. But it's necessary in order to save the whole. And so God's declaration is there's something that has destroyed mankind. And ultimately, those who have chosen to align with it, they must be cut off, as Matthew 24 says, for the sake of the elect. There has to be an end date to the propagation of this evil. And so God exacts retribution upon those who persecuted his saints. This system shows us in Revelation 17 that it's drunk with the blood of the saints. So something about this Babylonian mark of the beast system, it loves to persecute and hate the servants of God. Yet at the same time, it believes itself to be the servants of God. Which is the strangest thing. That's why I said, I've quoted you a thousand times, in John chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples that the time is going to come when they will kill you and they'll think they're offering a service to God. And that's the strange dynamic. The first murder in the Bible is a religious one. The first murder in the Bible is Cain killing Abel because God accepted his sacrifice and not mine. And the history is replete with these types of examples. And Babylon, this system, the Antichrist system, is drunk with the blood of the saints in Revelation 17. So God brings about this retribution upon these people that have persecuted and even slain his servants, while at the same time God's initiating a process of cleansing and renewal. And this process eradicates any potential contaminating influence that would detrimentally impact humanity in the future. And thus, I must wipe it out. I must kill it all. You know, I remember studying in school 6,000 years ago. Dr. Bosch was telling me in bioorganic chemistry, he's saying, you know, you put all these hand sanitizers out there. And he goes, these things are actually creating viruses that are toxic because you kill all the weak ones and you strengthen the strong ones. So there's less weak ones. If there's weak viruses, then, then they can interbreed with the weak ones and maybe they'll create more weak ones. But now that you kill all the weak ones, you're only making strong ones. And, you're getting, and so, so what the hospitals began doing is putting phenols 
And they would take these phenols, heavy toxins, and kill all the, it would scrub the hospital clean. And nowadays, the biggest problem is people are checking into hospitals, and they're, they're not coming out, not because of the injury they suffered. It's because of the viruses or the, or the bacteria or whatever it is that are so vicious. And in fact, Dr. Bosch said all those years ago, it would have been better from the beginning if we just used soap and water. That would have been the best remedy, but we're way beyond that now. You use just soap and water anymore, you might as well just spit on it. I mean, it's really not going to do anything. And the reality is, is that there's, there has to be a complete scrub. And you think, well, how in the world could you get rid of all those bacteria in the hospital? Well, there's one way I suggest to you. Burn the, burn the hospital down. Now, I'm not suggesting that any of you should become arsons. But I'm saying that's the only way to get rid of it. You have to burn it down. And the Bible talks about this place called hell, of being brimstone and fire. And so God has to wipe it out. The kingdom age into which men will enter in Christ is called the millennial kingdom. It's after the tribulation. It won't have that system in place. That's why it's called paradise. It's not paradise because of what's just what's there. It's paradise because of what's not there. You have to make that distinction. There's no sin. It's eradicated. And there's some intricacies theologically in that, but I'm speaking generally. But the fact is, only God can judge with a degree of accuracy. So we say, yeah, that's right. So I'm going to live that out in my own life. I'm going to behave just like Jesus. Be careful. Some people say to themselves, well, you know, you've got the quatrinity. You've got the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and me. <laughs> or, or just step over, Holy Spirit, I'm there. And I'm going to play the part of God. The Bible says the wrath of man doesn't bring about the righteous life that God requires. The Bible says God's wrath is slow to anger. Remember Geller one years ago, he used to go, slow to anger. <laughs> Abounding. You haven't seen Gell before, so it's, but you're slow to anger. And the problem is, man, you and I, we're not. And the fact is, is that very often when we execute judgment on behalf of God, we misrepresent God. We actually begin to introduce a system that makes us believe that we're God's servants, but actually all we're promoting is the kingdom of the enemy. And everything that we have to do has to be weighed according to the standard of the word of God. As soon as you become mature enough in Christ to not follow scripture, you're already lifted up in pride, which means you're already in the grip of the devil. And the Christian is, is a guy that fundamentally distrusts himself. Lean not upon your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge the Lord. And you say, well, this is a no-brainer. There are no no-brainers in God. And you sit back and you say, there, there's something going on here. God, I don't know what to do. And in, in, in the vacuum of knowing what to do, I, I, I sit and I stick to the word of God. It is written. That's the only way because there's so many factors that I can screw it up. I had years ago, this guy was attacking a pastor in the church and he says, well, this is an exception in this case. In this case, we don't go... Two or three witnesses come to you and confront you, and then we take it to the church. We don't go through this because this situation is unique. Well, how convenient. You don't have to be disciplined, but listen, the only way the church stays safe is if you follow the word of God. And good religious people say, well, in this situation, because of my maturity, I can violate scripture and go at it the way I want. That is the exact category of people that the devil will use in the last days. Undisciplined, they're not disciples. They think they are. They say, Well, I'm disciplined. I'm a disciple of Jesus. But you're not disciplined. And they look at you like there's no connection. You're not a disciple because you say it, you're a disciple because you do it. It's a word of action. <laughs> I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. In other words, I don't give myself permission to do what I want to do. I don't lean upon my own understanding. I want to punch the guy in the nose, I want to tear his head off. But that is unbiblical. And I go back to thy word. And use it as an objective standard to address the difficulty. And every indication of the book of Revelation is the people who took the mark of the beast are actually the agents that are persecuting the servants of God. They're drunk with the blood of the saints. They truly believe, as Jesus said in John 16, they're offering a service to God. Oh, I know this violates scripture, but I had to do it. This situation's unique. Oh, really? Well, you're more wise than the word of God, and I don't trust people that are more wise than Scripture. I'm amazed at how many people are. 
The fact is, only God can just, justly judge. You and I, we just screw things up. And thus the Bible says in Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Why? Because the wrath of man, as James says, does not bring about the righteous life that God requires. That's why. Do you, do I, do we fundamentally distrust ourselves? I mean, you've screwed up already enough times today. That should be evidence. <laughs> you wake up in the morning, you're like, whoa, where did that thought come from? Well, that's good evidence that I shouldn't be making the decisions here. God, what does your word say? That's called being a disciple, disciplined, a fundamental distrust of myself. And he quoted that, of course, from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Paul did in Romans 12. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35 says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. You know where Moses wrote that? Deuteronomy 32, after they went through the Red Sea. Pharaoh is chasing him. The waves are around them. He gets to the other side. The waves close in on Pharaoh's army and wipes them out. And they're like, holy cow, I can't believe what God just did. As I was talking about Matt this morning, I hate miracles. And God doesn't ever give miracles to entertain you. Next week, come back and we'll pull a rabbit out of a hat. Look, Jesus is here. He doesn't do that. But when we're in context where we need, we're helpless, like at the Red Sea, he opens a way. We go through. But the very trial in front of you is the very tool that God will use to destroy the enemy behind you. We go into faith. I don't know why this is happening, but I serve a mighty king. He is a great, mighty God. And therefore, I enter through. Yeah, there's fear. Yeah, there's trembling. Yeah, there's freaking out. Yeah, there's the what-ifs going on inside of my mind. But when I come through the end of it, I can speak with authority, whereas other people could not. I was listening this morning to Chris Rice sing that classic song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In my opinion, that's the only person that should be singing that song. Many of the choirs from the 50s make it sound horrible, but it's one of the greatest songs ever. And our God is a mighty fortress. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it, and they're safe. And there Moses, absolutely amazed. But then in that passage, he said, the, ima the, the, the imagery he gives, he says, the time when their foot shall slip. And when he uses that phrase, it suggests that those who appear to be standing in their wickedness, those who appear to be firmly established, they will eventually stumble and they'll face the consequences of their actions. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Give it time. Their foot will slip. But don't you dare touch them. You see, the devil motivates his servants in the name of Christianity to touch them. But God's servants say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And hence, this, I think this verse reminds us that God's judgment is certain. It's swift. And those who defy him will ultimately face the calamity and doom. Jesus said in Matthew in chapter 12, verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. And all of a sudden, I think in my mind, this song I came across, it's a hilarious song. It's a Papa Razzi is the guy's name. I heard it on Spotify. My kids, two youngest ones, think it's hilarious. Now, you guys are going to take me way off any pedestal you have me on. You don't have me on pedestals. Right now, it's a step stool. Now, I'm going to be below ground. But he sings out, it's okay if you poop your pants, <laughs> if you poop your pants sometimes. You know, this, my, my youngest thinks this is absolutely hilarious. I mean, we're talking tears and laughter. Kind of funny song. And you say, wait a second, I'm going to be judged for every worthless word that comes out of my mouth. Boy, I am in trouble. <laughs> And yet, what do you find in Scripture? These worthless words, are kind of like the idea of worthlessness in the Bible is idolatrous, and there's a whole study in that in and of itself. But what Jesus is conveying, the things we say about others matter. The way we engage life, and so all of a sudden you're sitting here and you're saying, whoa, I'm in trouble. Good, you recognize it. So here's how you deal with that. Lord, forgive me. Lord, please cleanse me. If you've gone out and trashed somebody, ask God for opportunity to re uh, redeem that, to put it right. 
But the very fact is that what comes out of your mouth, you better hope that guy's not God's servant, because if he is God's servant, your statements against him is actually the measure which you have judged yourself. Because the assumption is that's not God's servant, but if he is, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. And you guys are God's servants. And the, the danger is for you to begin to say, I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to fight back. It was Chuck Smith used to always tell us, he'd say, you know, if you throw dirt, you get dirty. Don't pick up the dirt. Don't pick it up. There's the measure of the man. There's the man that sees whether or not he really believes what he's professing in his mouth. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 suggests the idea that words have the power to harm just as much as physical actions can. And there he says, you've heard it been said of the days of old, you shall not murder. And they probably said, that's good, we've never done that. But Jesus goes on to say, yes, you have. You haven't taken a knife and stabbed him in the back, you haven't taken a bullet and shot him in the head, but you do it with your words. So you shall say, you don't murder, yep, we're pretty good there, but I say to you, placing himself above the law of Moses, I say to you, drilling behind the externals of the law of Moses and getting to the root, I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Every, whoever insults his brother will be liable of the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, there's more than one way that you can murder a man. And long before a person takes the action of actually putting a bullet in their head, or a knife in their back, long before that happens, they begin a process of words. They begin to undermine them in their own minds, and to clear their conscience, they share it with others. They undermine, they slander, they malign. Essentially, you're robbing another person, but you'd never call yourself a thief. And again, we've all been guilty of this. But are you okay with that? If you're okay with that, you're in big trouble. If you're feeling guilty and convicted this morning, I say, that's because Jesus loves you so much. <laughs> saying, don't go there. And Jesus said they're guilty. That's why I said in Psalm 31 and verse 13, for I hear the whispers of many, terror on every side, and they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. Psalm 119, verse 23, and this is all over in the Bible. Even though their princes sit plotting against me, watch this, your servant will meditate on your statutes. In other words, my response will not be proportionate to what they do to me. You do not determine my mood. You do not determine how I react. I will determine how I act based upon the king. You can do whatever you want. And, and you want me to react and to punch you in your face or something to give validity to what you're saying. I refuse. And people that have an agenda will look at silence as being proof. But give it time. Give it time. The impulsiveness that the devil requires will always end in death. An egg on your face and probably a little bit more of a browner nature. <laughs> and the reality is, the truth is, the servant of God doesn't react. And when you and I are servants of God, you're proving who you are. And they are proving who they are. And the servant doesn't react. The servant meditates upon the law of the Lord. And thus here in Revelation 14, in verse 12, it says, Here is the call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. It's in this context. In other words, the sign of the, the servant of God is his faithfulness in times of trouble. You know, you don't know the measure of a man when everything's good. Hey, listen, when life is good, enjoy it because trials come to us all. Don't be masochistic and say, I want to be more holy. God, send me trials. You ever been still stupid to ask God, say, God, give me patience. <laughs> you idiot, shut up. <laughs> There's only one way that's developed, <laughs> through trials. <laughs> You never beg for those things. You never put yourself deliberately in dilemmas. They'll come naturally enough. And the reality is the sign of the servant of God is faithfulness in those times of trouble. And the persecution of the servants of God faced here in the book of Revelation, as well as today, 
is most often from those who consider themselves, as I already said, to be the servants of God. Acts chapter 6, look how it reads in verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men. Watch this. They secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now, did Stephen do that? No. But they said it, and they're religious. It must be true. They would never lie. Do you, you still put relationships above truth? The prohibition in the scripture from, I hate to say it, I make myself real popular here, women being the pastors, isn't because women aren't smart enough, they're actually smarter than men in many ways. It's because women tend to put relationship over truth. Two plus two is 3.9 if we can be friends. <laughs> Men are just like, no, two plus two is four. I don't give a rip. Now, we could be wrong, but there's a fundamental principle. And Eve compromised truth for relationship. And that has to be completely gone from the servant of the Lord. There, there's kind of a brutality in declaring truth, not because you hate the person. It's because you love truth. And they stirred the people of God up, it says, and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. There's the evidence that he's faulty because we all agreed that you're wrong. Oh, that's a good basis of truth, isn't it? You started a slander campaign, a gossip campaign, then you arrested the guy and then put him to death. Yep, that's proof enough. And you know what they ended up doing? I just told you, they killed him. Long before they killed him, they talked bad about him. You, you think, we think that there's a separation between, the, well, I'll just trash the guy, but I would never kill him. You already have. You're already robbing him of his dignity. You already are a murderer. You just haven't had opportunity. And who was this? It was Stephen. Stephen was one of the early Christians who was facing tremendous opposition. And you know who opposed him the most? It was a group that belonged, as Acts says, it was a group that belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen. Well, wasn't amazing how they, they're the freedmen, but they put other men in bondage. And these individuals falsely accused Stephen of speaking blasphemy against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, eventually leading to Stephen being brought before the council and put to death. They were murderers in the name of God. But it wasn't the true and the living God. It's what Jesus referred to in John chapter 8 when he was talking to these same people. He said, your father is the devil. Are you, you ever follow the, just read the first eight chapters of the book of John if you want to see this interplay, or ten chapters, this interplay between Jesus and the Pharisees. It goes something like this. I'm the son of God. How blasphemous. You're the son of God. We're the sons of Abraham. If you were the sons of Abraham, you would believe what Abraham taught about. He taught about me. And you don't believe Abraham, though you say you believe in Abraham, because I'm the very one that he spoke about. Well, we're sons of God. If you were sons of God, you'd be hearing the voice of God. You would hear that I was his son. I was his servant. I am his servant. But the fact is that you're attacking me is proof that though you think you're the servants of God, you're not. <laughs> There's John. And that same spirit, I just described Sandpoint, exists today. Isn't it amazing how nothing changes? And that's why John said, goes on to say in his epistle, if you say you love God and you hate the brother, you're deceiving yourself. You're not in the truth. I love God, I just hate his servants. You better hope those aren't God's servants. Even if they weren't God's servants, let's pretend they're not God's servants. Let's just pretend. Let's pretend that person is right. They're not God's servants. You're still doing the works of the devil. But on the flip side, if in fact they are the servants of God and you're doing the works of the devil in what you're doing towards them, you're, you're aligning yourself with the kingdom that though you think is the true and the living God is a false kingdom. Step by step, you're going further and further and further down that path so that when the epical moment happens where the choice is to receive the mark of the beast, you'll accept it, not because it's as blatant as you think it's going to be. You'll be aware of it, but it'll be subtle. It'll be convincing this is the right thing to do. Those people who have leaned upon their own understanding and given themselves to sensual wisdom 
will, with a clear conscience, accept the mark of the beast because it aligns with the philosophy that they've been practicing, though religious people, for their entire life. Finally, a, a Christianity that works. And they're going to accept it. And they won't be able to see the fruit of it, which is the keynote. They're drunk with the blood of the saints. So not wanting to be guilty of that, they, they gather together a group of people that they call the saints, and they don't kill them. Yep. God's servant. Known by who I don't kill. <laughs> You're not to be known by who you don't kill at all. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Paul the Apostle is being attacked throughout the epistles, and he says, the day of Jesus Christ is going to bring this to light. You guys are so convinced I'm such an evil guy, Paul was saying. And they're saying such evil things about me. The day of Jesus Christ, when he appears, he'll reveal the truth of the situation. And then Jesus in Revelation chapter 3, he said those religious people who are actually a synagogue of Satan themselves, they think that by killing you, they're serving me. And he says, but I'm going to make them come before you and bow down and declare that you actually were my servant. God, in other words, at the day of judgment, is going to align this lie religion with truth in every area, in every place. You know, here this morning, do you have any basis? Do you and I have any basis of walking in pride now? None. None. And the only remedy to this is to just bow the knee. You don't have to bow the knee before me, before anyone else. You just sit back and say, Lord Jesus, I, man, I'm, keep me from that path. Forgive me of my sins. That's how you deal with that, folks. You just own truth. You're, you align yourself with truth. The whole issue of confession of your sins, repentance, is you're realigning your mind with the way God sees it. Not the way others see it. Not the way your own heart sees it. Your heart will see a lot of weird things. You realign it with the nature and the purposes of God. Philippians in chapter 1, he says, when you stand firm in the day of trial, he says, they will be frightened. Don't be frightened in any way. Philippians 1.28, not to be frightened in anything by your opponents. And then watch what he says. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. But your salvation and that from God. You see, when you're attacked, you're supposed to act the way the natural man reacts and run away with your tail tucked between your legs. But you stand in the day of trial, it drives them crazy because they assume that you're operating on the same system that they are, which is sensual wisdom, which is demonic, James chapter 3, of the devil. But because you're not operating on the sensual wisdom and try to preserve your own life, you stay the trial, you stand war, you're in a battle. Jesus said it was going to be hard. And as you stay that course, what happens? You find invariably you're in conflict with the kingdom they're trying to establish, though they're doing it in the name of God. But it's actually not in God at all. It's a promotion of the kingdom of the enemy with the appearance of being the servants of God. And this system, therefore then, as you can probably gather, is not religionless. And what I'd suggest to you is that long before they received the mark of the beast, they were practicing the practices of the mark of the beast because the mark of the beast is more than just a physical mark. Hear this. It's a culmination of principles that have been embraced over time. And these principles include the obvious things, deception, pride, immorality of all sorts. It goes on and on, but the point being for now, the mark isn't the beginning. It's the end point of a journey that involves enlightening one's self with the principles, the philosophies, the methods of the enemy. In other words, long before the mark was received, they practiced the principles of the kingdom of our enemy. Yet they believed themselves to be the agents of the true and the living God. And that's why I love the scripture. The scripture objectifies my emotions. My emotions are all over the place sometimes. But here's the difference between me and a lot of people. I'm disciplined. I feel everything you've ever felt, and sometimes I fell in it. When I fell, I confess it a sin. If they know about it, I confess it to them. If they don't know about it, I just keep it silent. I'm not like that girl when I was in high school. She comes up to me at a, at a high school retreat with the church, and she said, i got to ask you for forgiveness. I said, why? She goes, I've hated you for years. 
I forgive you, but now I hate you? <laughs> it's like, don't tell me this. I knew nothing about that inner conflict you were having. It didn't involve me. Just keep it in your own head between you and God. Don't do that to me. But if it was very public, yeah. But pride won't allow people to do that. And sometimes you're in situations where the person that you've sinned against has died. The Lord knows. You go to the Lord and say, God, man, I screwed that up. And you leave it there. Either the cross of Jesus covers, either the blood works or it doesn't. <laughs> Jesus, if you're, I've prayed this many times. Lord, if your blood doesn't work now, it's never worked. <laughs> I need your blood. And very often the person that actually is the servant of the Lord, you're here this morning, you're feeling very guilty. That's because he loves you. He corrects those he loves. And we take it as being saying, God doesn't love me. It's like, it's exactly the opposite. And Isaiah was very sensitive to his own sin when he came closer to the Lord. In other words, the closer you are to the Lord, you actually feel worse about your sin. But then you enter into faith of the cross of Jesus Christ. There it is. There it is. And we, we involve all our emotions in these things, and we, we navigate by our emotions. You've got to go back to the Word and be kind of steelied. But many people practice the, the principles of the kingdom, and they're at peace with it. They're okay with it. In the last days, long before the mark is imposed, people have already been deposed in principle to participating in the precepts of the kingdom, as I said. And I have a long list. I'm not going to go through each one of them because it's, it's longer than I want to spend. But deception and lies, that's a principle of Satan's kingdom. Satan is often referred to as the father of lies in John 8, verse 44. Deception and falsehood are core elements of a strategy to lead people astray from the path of righteousness. Pride and rebellion. Satan's original sin was pride and rebellion against God in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. And the spirit of pride and defiance is reflected in those who follow his ways. Accusation and slander. Satan is described as the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12.10. His kingdom promotes a culture of accusation, slander, division. Look at the fruit. What is it producing? What methods are being used? And all of us have failed in this. But when you begin to think that it's okay with God, when you make peace with these attitudes in your heart, then you're in trouble. When you start justifying it, and you always know you're trying to justify it, people that their consciences are betraying them, they gossip. So they try to convince you, because they're such inner turmoil because of what they're doing, they have to tell you about it and embitter you so that you can become an agent to prove to them that what they're doing is okay. That's all that is. They're trying to heal their own wounds. That's why people gossip. They're trying to heal their own wound. But it's their conscience betraying them. And so as opposed to actually clearing their conscience, they embitter others and they sear their own conscience to eventually the point where they're okay with doing what is blatantly described as wrong in the scripture and they're convinced that God is telling them to do it. But <clears throat> wrong God, wrong Jesus. I could go on and on. Destruction and death is a method of his kingdom. Hatred and enmity, selfishness and greed. Uh, the pursuit, in other words, the pursuit of self-interest and material gain. And here's the key phrase, at the expense of others. This is wrong. Immorality, impurity we talked about two weeks ago. Fear and torment. Idolatry, the worship of false gods, false signs and wonders. Darkness and spiritual blindness, rejection of God's authority. Rejecting God's authority and sovereignty is a central aspect of Satan's rebellion. And his kingdom encourages a similar mindset of rebellion. We could talk about dishonor and disobedience, false religion and spirituality, despair and hopelessness. I don't have time for that. But those are practices and principles of the kingdom of our enemy. And many people that claim to be following Jesus Christ... I didn't say they haven't fallen into this. I'm saying they're okay with it. They're justifying it. They're saying it's okay to go about this way of life. It's not okay. And they're on a path that will end in a very certain destination. In other words, in case I haven't made it clear, long before people receive the mark of the beast, they will be practicing the practices of the mark of the beast. They've been aligning themselves for years through those practices in their lives. So taking the mark is naturally a logical step. In other words, People will receive the mark because it will be coordinated with a principle that lives within their daily lives, and they will willingly submit to the system for most of their lives. And again, all of us sin. All of us sin. But I have to ask the question again, are you at peace with it? 
Are you okay with it? Are you justifying something that the scripture says is wrong? (laughs) You're in trouble. But if you're struggling with it, and you wake up and say, God, why did I do that? You're repenting, you're turning from it. I mean, for the, till the day you die, you're going to have goofy thoughts in your head. Anybody here think that they're going to wake up one day and say, I'm in Jesus. I don't have bad thoughts anymore. It's like, good luck. <laughs> it's going to be there till the day you die. And the Christian is a good repenter. The only other option is to pretend you don't have those thoughts and to be holy and righteous in those kind of people's eyes is to enforce that righteousness on other people. So you become super legalistic and critical of others. There's the Christian church. It's avoiding, it's judging our sins and other people. That's an old tactic, isn't it? Even politically, right? You accuse the other side politically of what you yourself are doing. He's colluding with the Russians or something like this. It's like, it's all, you accuse them. That's, that's an actual uh, strategy in Marxism. You accuse your enemy of what you yourself are doing. And so when the innocent person comes back, I didn't do this. You did this. Oh, good comeback. I made the accusation first, so it must be true. (laughs) You have to investigate it if you're in the proper position to do that. Don't take a dog by its ears, by the way. And see if it's true. But they receive the mark for several reasons. Several reasons. Survival, security, times of turmoil and distress. They're afraid how they're going to be cared for. Yeah, I'm just going to take the mark. You say, well, that's the reason. Economic benefits, the mark will be tied to a global economic system, as we saw in chapter 13. The people will be persuaded to take it in order to participate in financial transactions, trades, and commerce. And this could seem like a practical choice for those who prioritize financial stability over their faithfulness to God. And, you know, that's why I've said before, tithing isn't about raising money. It's about raising our hearts to heavenly places where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, so that when, not if, bad things happen on earth, our hearts will not be destroyed with it. And it's separating our hearts from the things of this earth. So when Jesus says, men's hearts are going to fail them for the things happening upon this earth, if my heart's in the things of this earth, as opposed to my citizenship being in heaven, though I'm on the earth, I will fall with the rest of the earth. It's a preparing of my heart. And then God says, I'll do more with your 90% than you can do with your 100. Don't worry about that. Maybe they're doing it for social pressure. I mean, the COVID jab kind of told us that, right? If you don't get this jab, you don't love other people. Oh, whether or not you got the jab isn't the point. The point is the spirit that was there was this intense pressure. What about the fear of persecution? Maybe some people are just kind of stupid. They don't lack, they don't have any spiritual discernment. I mean, there's things that's happened upon this earth that your mind just said, huh? I think about the, you know, church lockdowns. Something inside of me said, huh? The fear and pressure were there, but guess what? I said, it doesn't feel right. Something was wrong. Oh, yeah, we, uh, of course, had live streaming start at that point in time. But all of you were here. (laughs) Now, I didn't tell you to come. I just said that that's going to be an option so you can stay home. But something inside of me was saying, this doesn't feel right. And yet other people had no consciousness whatsoever. I know in Spokane, my dad's church, he was receiving huge pressure from his board to shut down. So they shut down for like three weeks. After three weeks, my dad said, no, we're opening it up. And they're in a major platform in a major city, which guess what? Put him at huge risk comparatively. Amazing. Amazing what people, you and I, would do if there's enough pressure put upon us. We better make sure that we're confidence is in our Lord Jesus Christ and not in the systems of this world. Because if you only start to wrestle with the hard questions then, it's going to be like you're preparing for a football game, but you've never lifted weights. You're not going to do so well. I was watching the thing on Netflix on you know, Tim Tebow and the Florida Gators and their rise to fame and all that stuff, and it's fascinating. Then I saw him walking away, you know, it's modern day. They showed his legs, his one left leg is about the size of my chest all the way around, pure muscle. And I looked at him and I said, you jerk. You know, I said, 
It's not only that he has a great personality, he loves Jesus, he's good looking, and he's got a killer body. Jerk. (laughs) And yet they talked about the intensity of the workouts. They showed guys puking on the floor because they were, you ever did like workouts so hard you start vomiting? Been there, done that. When I was young, I feel a thousand years old now. Now I'm an orange on toothpicks, but delicately balanced. But back then, (laughs) I remember putting four plates on each side and doing it 15 times. Bar bent, no problem whatsoever. 15 times. Now, one plate, 10 times. I'm like, what in the world? How did I do that? Can't do it. But if I was preparing for a football game, I wouldn't sit back and say, you know, I'm going to eat potato chips and drink soda today. Yes. And think that I'm in the battle because I yell at the TV. (laughs) You're not in the battle. Being an observer, no, you get in and lift weights. And the trials that we all face are the, the means by which we're being prepared for a day of trial, a bigger trial. But regardless of the reason they accept this mark, there's a whole panoply of reasons. Listen to the warning. If anyone worships the beast, he's warning. And its image and receives the mark on his forehead and his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. God warns because he loves And you see, at the cross of Jesus Christ, he took the punishment for all of our sins. The only sin that remains is rejecting Christ. The only sin. Hell's not a place of God's justice. We went into that last week in great detail. That's a false conclusion. At the cross, John said, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. But now God's going to punish you in eternity. Listen, the only sin remaining is rejecting Jesus. The sin that you're going to be held accountable for is what have you done with my son, the Lord Jesus Christ? That, because all the sins have been taken away. Even the one I'm committing? Yep. So that should motivate you, if you understand it properly, to not do it anymore. You say, well, I keep doing it. Are you at peace with it? Then you're in big trouble, because you probably don't know him. But you keep falling into it? You need discipline, discipleship. You need to be taught in the ways of the faith. You need to sit at the feet of the master. You need to stop sowing to the flesh, because if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap to the flesh. Duh, you plant an apple seed in the ground, you're going to get apple trees. And you're like, I can't believe I got apple trees. Well, that's because you put a seed in the ground. <laughs> Don't plant weeds. Of course you get dandelions all over the place. You know, when I came to Sandpoint, what, 14, 15 years ago, I can't remember, 1,000 years or something like that, it's been a hard go. <laughs> I came from, San, from Spokane where the city flower was the lilac. I came to Sandpoint and I said, it's the dandelion. <laughs> now, the good thing is the dandelions are very healthy. Actually, if you eat them, they're wonderful. Make sure the dog hasn't peed on them and there's no herbicides put upon them, but they're, they're actually really healthy. <laughs> My dandelion tastes a little different. Like, a, what was that, the original vacation movie? <laughs> no Chef Chase is eating the sandwich. The dog peed on the sandwich. <laughs> the old woman says, you hit a point where you don't care anymore fell on the floor but the only sin remaining is rejecting Christ and hell becomes a place that's an expression of the free will of men men want to be there you see I don't believe it well it's true Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You say, well, that's the elect. No, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed on him would not perish but have everlasting life. No, 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 the world means the elect. No, it doesn't. Look it up. That is fantasy. You're inserting something into the text that is not there. If you just take the text for what it says, what the Lord, you're twisting the words of Jesus. He took away the sins of the world. 
And the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the only unforgivable sin. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one that leads you to Jesus. And if you push away the one that leads you to Jesus, guess who you won't find? Jesus, who is the only means by which you're saved. He took it all away, nailed it to the cross. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And the reality is, is that in Christ, the debt was paid. Hell is not a place for justice. It's a place of man's free will. In verse 10, it says something very interesting. He says, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And this has caused a lot of speculation because 2 Thessalonians in verse one, chapter 1, verse 9 says this, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. So which one is it? Are they in God's presence? The Lamb is Jesus. Or are they away from it? Right? And the idea that hell is a state of eternal separation from God, which is accurate, is often referred to as a doctrine called separationism. And what separationism teaches is that hell is not just a physical location, but a state of existence where the unrepentant are separated from God's presence, his grace, his love, his goodness, his order, his sanity forever, his truth in Matthew chapter 25, again, Jesus says, speaking of hell, he says, it's an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, not for you. It was prepared for him, but if you choose to follow someone, you'll go where they're going. So how do we reconcile this? It's actually quite simple. What it appears is that Jesus and the angels are there at the start of the judgment to oversee, to witness, and to contrast the eternal state into which these unrepentant men are about to enter. People that have chosen volitionally the path they're going to go on. And if you think about it, his presence would produce the following effects. Think this through. Number one, I have probably 10 different things. Number one, Jesus is there at the judgment of these people with his angels around them. What would that produce within the people? These things. And there's many more, but these, these, this is what comes to my mind. Number one, it would underscore the inescapability of their judgment because of their choice to align themselves with evil. The king of kings is on hand, along with his heavenly host, to establish this fact. Number two, it forces them to confront truth. Men are liars. You and I naturally lie. We lie to ourselves. But when men are face to face with him who is the embodiment of truth, there's no longer a lie that you and I can hide behind. Of course, I won't be there because of Christ, but these men won't be able to hide behind the lie anymore. Because all men will one day be forced to confront truth, whether it's in a principle or the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He is truth. And they'll be forced to confront truth. And by Christ being there, when he is there, it'll eliminate any illusions or falsehoods that may have obscured their understanding. They will confront truth. Number three, having truth expunged, they would see perhaps for the first time that they do not want to be in the presence of this king forever and ever. It'll be the basis of them wanting, I would suggest to you, to go to hell. Remember last week we talked about thy will be done. They would rather be left alone for all of eternity to be with that guy because you're not the God that I created in my mind. You're not the God that I was worshiping. Get me away from that freak. I mean, people come to a church that teaches the word, they get convicted and they run away. What do you think they're going to do? I mean, really? If I was radiating in all of God's glory, well, of course you haven't seen my legs, but, but if I was, people say, Ben, you've been with the Lord, Ben. Yes, I Shekinah. <laughs> but people get convicted in, in the presence of a faithful church. What are they going to do in the presence of the King of Kings? Say, oh, it's just so loving. Coo, coo. <laughs> no, it's what Robert Browning in his poem Paraclesis said in 1835. Listen to this. I give up the fight. Let there be an end. This is, this is a, a damned man speaking. 
Let there be an end, a privacy, an obscure nook for me. And then here's the key phrase. I want to be forgotten, even by God. What's, what's increasingly the way our culture is dealing with stress? Just leave me alone. Get me the, this is intentional, get me the hell out of here. <laughs> you see the picture? Just leave me alone. Separationism, the doctrine of hell. And he looks at you and he says, your will be done. But because he is love, there's no love. Because he is truth, there's no truth. Because he is order, there's only disorder. Darkness is, is, is not an entity in and of itself. Darkness is the lack of light. You don't measure quantities of darkness. You measure the quantities of light. And where there's no light, there's darkness. But I think number four, Christ's presence signifies him as an authority and judge, contrary to people's belief. John chapter five talks about this. And the fact that it's witnessed by this angelic host like legal clerks it establishes the motions and the orders for all of eternity. This isn't hidden or arbitrary judgment. It occurs in the presence of the divine witnesses who attest to the accuracy and justice of the verdict that is going to be handed down. Number five, they witness to the righteousness of God. As they stand before Christ, the unrepentant will witness the righteousness of God's judgment. They'll be recognizing that its decisions are perfect there's no errors. As Revelation 19 says, they're going to look back on everything that happened. And what do they say? Righteous and just were your judgments. In other words, hindsight's 20-20. They'll look back and say, God, we, we thought you were going to get it wrong. But now that we look at it, you did everything perfectly. And they won't spend eternity hating God. Yeah, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But let God be true and every man a liar. He's going to have to wrestle with his conscious choice to willingly be out of the presence of the only one who is life and truth. But number six, his presence would amplify the extent of their defiance against their creator. Number seven, his presence, perhaps I already alluded to this, provides an opportunity for individuals to see their lives as they truly were, not what they think they were. I mean, aren't you glad you're in Jesus? What's your, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness and my ego and reputation. <laughs> is that what the song says? <laughs> but he makes them confront their life as it truly was. Men have imaginations. And here in Christ's presence, all will be revealed. As Hebrews says, everything will be open, naked, and revealed before him with whom we have to do. Number eight, it allows the individuals to fully comprehend their choices. It's an act of allowing them to witness the reality of their decisions. Number nine, it reaffirms God's justice. It demonstrates that God holds every individual accountable for their actions, underscoring the righteousness of his judgment. And last, it underscores the gravity of their sin. What do you mean? The judgment required the presence of the king of kings. I mean, not much what I do requires a court. But if someone that important shows up, so those who rejected Christ will come to understand the immense cost of their refusal, deepening their awareness of the magnitude of their choices, affirming that the rejection of God himself was deliberate and it's final. And they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. It's not just about judgment. It's about accountability. It's about truth. And it's about the conscious choice to live separate from God, though I say the right words. But that path will lead me ultimately to a final destination. That's why we're called disciples, disciplined ones. And again, we have to choose not to suggest that we earn our salvation. But we pick the path and as you walk down the right path, guess what? Boop, I tripped, skinned my knee. But the righteous man falls how many times? Seven, but he gets back up. You know, I want to tell you something. I get knocked down, but I get up again. And ever going to keep me down? I, can, you know, I mean, that's really the righteous man. I'm always proud of myself when I sing 90s songs because I'm so stuck in the 80s. <laughs> 
Of course, I wasn't born until 92, so. But God's judgment, while a sobering reality, can't be separated from his justice, his accountability, nor his love. And what we're witnessing here is not a vindictive act, but a necessary consequence of aligning with falsehood over truth. And ultimately, the final judgment is a culmination of a life lived, choices that are made, a condition of one's hearts, rejecting the conviction of the Holy Spirit, being at peace with rebellion. But that's not us. You struggling with things? I say, good, good job. Still search struggling. People say, I'm struggling with sin. Good job, I'm so proud of you, little buddy. Good job. You're not at peace with it? Good job. Confess it as sin. You yelled at your husband, or your husband yelled, tell her, forgive me, I'm sorry. You want to be right with all men. You can't be right with them. You can't be at peace with all men. But as much as is possible, live at peace with all men. It's not always possible. Not because you don't want peace, because they don't want peace. It doesn't take two to tangle people. Well, there's two people fighting. Both are wrong. Uh, you really? So like when Jesus and the Pharisees were fighting, both of them were wrong? Really? Does that pass to Scripture? It doesn't take two to tango. It just takes one. But though we're not... Jesus himself, not suggesting that. We will fail. And we'll be accused of all sorts of things, but everything has to be brought to the light of Jesus. God, is that true what they said about me? God, if that's true, then please forgive me and help me not to go there. Correct me. But the Pharisee who judges his sin and other people is very concerned that you follow the rules. And if you don't, which is a form of them taking power over you, if you want to be a ruler, you got to make rules. And they're the ones to enforce them. And I'm not suggesting antinomianism where there are no rules. That leads to problems as well. There's order and structure, but it's under the governance of the Spirit, directed by the Word of God. Unless the Christian rallies around Scripture and says, I will not violate this, and if I do, it's a basis of repentance. But when a person consciously, when it says, do not do this, they said, I don't give a rip. I'm doing it anyway. You are choosing a path Though the grace has been given, and that path does not end in life. As I had to tell somebody a couple of years ago now, I said, this path you're on does not end well. And I love this person dearly. I said, this does not end well. And you sit back and you see this begin to play out in their lives. We always think, yeah, God, bring justice. I don't want justice. I want mercy. Because sin is its own reward, and boy, they're going to get theirs. Woo! I don't have to beat them up. Give it time. And the heart of the Christian is to rescue men, to use wisdom. Sometimes you can't speak truth into people's lives because you don't have that position or they don't want to hear it from you. So what do you do? You pray. But the encouragement to the church is to make choices. Make choices to, to walk the straight and the narrow, which isn't legalistic and narcissistic and censorious and judgmental. It's just one day at a time saying, I want to walk with the king. I want to make this decision about how I punish my child. I mean, take anything. Lord, how would you have me deal with this? And, and there's no pat answer for every person. There's principles in the scripture. God, give me wisdom. There's a broken heart. You excited to execute judgment on others? You're dangerous. You know, I have every right to spank my children. You want to spank my children? I don't trust you. You're dangerous. You're a weird person. You want to spank other people's children? You're nuts. You really are. Thus saith the Lord. I mean, no, he didn't really say that, but that's the reality is you're a weird person. All of us have spheres of influence. We sit back and say, God, let me do whatever you'd have me do in this situation to honor you, and you're going to screw it up but you're on the right path. You're going to fall down, but you get back up. You're going to skin your knee. You say, ouch. You're going to accidentally, you know, you ever do that? You're kind of like, hey, you reach out to hug somebody and your elbow ends up whacking them or something like that. It's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was trying to be nice, but I accidentally was mean. <laughs> nice haircut. Did you do it yourself? You know, it's like, why did I say that? <laughs> I was trying to compliment you. Man, I tell you, how did I do that? I didn't mean to do that. Yeah, you're going to screw it up. You're a mom, and you, you get mad, and you yell. I'm sorry, Lord. 
And then you have to debate whether or not you should tell them sorry because you know the issues going on with them. You know that if you say that, it's going to embolden them to keep on being a little brat and just like, I don't know what to do. And you've got to navigate that whole thing. I know, but it's the heart. And God, help me to honor you in all of this. I don't know what to do. But we're on the right path. That's the difference. We're not at peace with a lifestyle of rebellion. So God, I pray that you would please encourage our hearts and keep us, Lord, on the straight and narrow, not legalistically, judgmentally, narcissistically, censoriously, but God, walking by your grace. Heal our hearts, Lord. Forgive our sins. We praise you, Lord. Even here this morning, we're having communion. Uh, The gentleman can come up and grab the communion that you want. We're having communion, and what a great way to say, Lord, I just want to be one with you. I want to be on the right path. It's just bread and grape juice. But it can become a symbol this morning of your heart desire to be one with Jesus. Your heart's been drawn to the things of this world. You're you're walking in overwhelming guilt because of your own failure. Trust you, me. It's the unrepentant that have justified their decisions. It's the unrepentant that don't give a rip and they're trying to get as many people on their side of the situation as possible. But you're not those people. You're very aware of your sin. And communion is an opportunity to say, Lord, I want to have fellowship with you. And as a consequence, I will have fellowship with others. So God, we give you all the praise and glory. Thank you for the day of your return. Help us to honor you in the meantime. Heal our hearts, Lord, and forgive our sins. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.